This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are continuing our theme of interviewing psychologists who have worked rurally. And today's guest is Julie Waller. She's a registered counselling psychologist who has worked rurally for about nine years, and now she's returned to the big city. Julie did her master's thesis on psychologists who work rural and remote and their experiences of multiple relationships. So we're really excited to have her on board so that she can share her experiences and help you guys out as well if you're considering working rurally or if you just want to know what it's like to be a rural and remote psychologist. Hello, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, everyone. (laughs) It's so nice to have you on. And like I said, I'm really excited. Julie has such a vast experience in this area. And the first thing I want to get to, Julie, is where were you located when you were doing most of your rural work and what was the population size? Okay. um, Most of my work was in a small country town in WA, which had about 2,500 people in it. So it was pretty small. And then I also did some time supporting other sort of regional areas sort of from there as well. One was a really tiny little remote town. Another one was, I guess, population about 9,000, I think. And then I've also done, I guess, that's across the Kimberley and the Pilbara. Oh, my gosh, that is so small. It's like when you think about the Perth population, it's about 2 million and over. And so working with a population of 9,000, that just sounds like you could walk around the corner and walk into a client, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I, I think I think that's pretty much a daily occurrence. So. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we will unpack that in a moment. So what were your work roles, Julie, while you were working rurally? Um, so I guess I worked across a number of different agencies. So some of them were not-for-profits. First one I worked in was pretty much whatever walked through the door in terms of um, client presentations. Yeah. So it was kids, adults, teenagers, couples, whole families. Another role included, I guess, working in an Aboriginal medical service. Um, another role was a really tiny little community as well. I also worked um, in the school in the town I lived in for a while, for a couple of years. And then um, working sort of, I guess, with schools sort of across um, the Gascoigne and the Kimberley and the Pilbara region. So, yeah. Yeah, a variety of different areas and work experiences. So, Julie, what prompted you to work rurally? Was it always a passion or did something kickstart it for you or maybe you grew up rurally? No, I was a city girl. I'm originally from Sydney and then moved to Perth when I was a kid. And um, I went on holiday with some friends. And just had a great time sort of in a little country town and then loved it so much and just kept looking for jobs there while I was still doing my undergrad. And then um, decided um, when I saw a job advertised, I'd apply and see what happened. And um, I got offered the job and so I decided to go. Oh, my gosh. And what was that like, I guess, moving from the city to the town? Like was it hard to relocate and build community? And what were some of the costs and the challenges there? I was fortunate in that I guess that was my first role as a psychologist. So I'd finished my four years studying. I was fortunate that um, the job offered um, supervision. So I got my registration under the four plus two That's great. system. And um, and the company paid for my moving costs up. So that meant I think I was on a two-year contract and I thought I'd see how I go. 
Um, I moved up there. I had a child at the time, so I moved up there with my son. It was just the two of us, and we didn't know a single soul in town. But I found it really great in that the previous psych came up and did a bit of a handover with me, so introduced me around to services and the school and things like that in town. And and then I met a few of, I guess, other service providers. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about living in a country town. Um, people are really friendly, and so I got invited out to all these little things and bits and pieces, and that's how I grew to meet people. And then I just signed my name up for all different sort of sports and groups and stuff and, yeah, made new friends. Amazing. One thing I'm noticing, I've talked to a few practitioners who have worked rurally is that you all seem to have, I reckon if you all took a personality test, you'd come up really high on openness to experiences. You're just like, I just like, yep, okay, I'll do that. Somebody's invited me here. Okay. Yep. I'll do that. Does that sound like you? Um, yeah, probably. I'm a little bit adventurous. So I think that was one of the things that got me my first job. I remember, um, I had my interview, um, in, it was Geraldton and, um, I, I, during the day I had a big break before flying back to the city and um I went and hired a bike and rode around the town and I think that impressed them because they had to ring me to tell me the flight was brought forward and I think they were impressed that here I was in a town I've hired a bike and I've gone and done stuff for the day rather than you know just sort of going around doing stuff so yeah I think I am a little bit adventurous yeah and it sounds like you integrated yourself amongst the community quite easily yeah I think um I guess maybe that's part of probably who I am that I want to get involved I've always done sort of volunteer work and so I think when you move to a little town, it's about, I guess, forming those connections. I think it's really hard as a psychologist to find that balance though as well and as we, I think, go on today and talk about multiple relationships, you know, it's really important to balance that self-care as well because in a small country town you do end up seeing your clients all the time um, and so you've got to really look after yourself and find that balance. So as much as you want to give and be part of the community, it's also about looking after yourself as well. Absolutely. So, Julie, I'm curious to note, because your first trial was working rurally, so maybe you didn't have yeah. anything to compare it to working in the city, but now that you've worked in both locations, what do you notice about the differences? I guess there's more of a connection, I think, with the people that you work with. And I think probably in certain services and agencies, you'd probably get that as well. So like if you worked in a school or if you worked in a place where you're regularly seeing um, the clients coming through, you probably do build up that rapport and relationship. I think in a regional or remote country town, I think there's a greater sense of community and a greater sense of responsibility, I think, in terms of caring for the community. So you're always, I guess, myself and I connected in with a couple of other service providers we had in the town, a couple of social workers. You know, we used to sort of get together and I guess just keep an eye on things, you know, maintaining confidentiality of our clients. But, you know, if there were things sort of bubbling up, you know, we tried to work together to just make sure we provided that support and I guess were the hands on the community as such, just holding it and containing it. So, yeah. It really sounds like you were the custodians of the community in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I loved about living in a small country town. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, yeah, you, you don't have to be like that in a country town if you don't want to be. But I think that was something in the town I was in and with the other service providers that sort of, you know, how we operated a little bit. So, Julie, what were some of the things that shocked you about working rurally? Like, did you expect that you would be walking into your clients in the shops and stuff or...? Uh, no, but I was probably really fortunate in that um, my first employer, my boss or the director of the service was really good and just was really strict on boundaries. Um, and it's really challenging 
um, to find and, and really hard to sort of just get the lay of the land and figure out how that works. So I think that she was about, I guess, uh, work at me as an employee and as a psychologist being the face of the service in the community and really about making sure that, you know, you, you maintain those boundaries. So, you know, while it might be nice to think about if one of your clients invited you for a coffee, you know, you, you can't be doing that as a psychologist. You wouldn't do it if you're in the city, but it's just how do you find that way of then uh, passing on that invitation and, and maintaining the relationship with the client. And and I guess just because those those um, incidents of running into your clients and those boundary crossings happen all the time, you know, when you're living in the in the country, you can't avoid it at all. Yeah, I reckon it's, is it possible even that in the country, people assume your role is more casual than it is? So even different cultures, there might be like, oh, why can't Julie just have a session outside with me? Like, why can't yes. we just go grab a cuppa? Um, yep. And there might even be quite, I guess, taken aback if you're like, oh, no, 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 that's not the way we do things. Yeah. So it's finding, I guess, that balance of all of that, trying to ma- maintain, I guess, that relationship with your client, but sort of containing them and closing them down. The amount of times, I guess, I was in the supermarket, even with my kids, and someone would say, oh, you know, so a client would see you and they'd start picking up on the last session, basically oh, there. Gosh. So you try to contain that in and and I just have, I guess, my really my rote sort of response. Oh, great. I'm so glad. I guess we need to touch base. How about I give you a call on Monday and I'll squeeze you in this week and we'll make sure we catch up and we can just, you know, talk about it. So that way you can sort of contain the client and 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 um and not get out of there. But just I guess if you needed to get out of there, you, you could get out of there, but just to help the client contain it and help the client with those boundaries. Um, you know, I think almost every time if I ever went out to the pub in town. I'd come out of the toilet and there'd be a client there waiting for me to pick up a session. <laughs> so, you know, or I had clients wanting to buy me a drink, you know, to say thanks and things yeah. like that. So I think I, every time I went to the pub, I always walked around with an empty drink in my, like an empty can in my hand just so that client, oh, yeah, you can grab the next one, no worries, you know. Oh, my just, gosh. Just to find ways of finding that balance of how do you manage these things. And the social worker in town, sometimes we'd go out, you know, and, um, because a lot of the referrals I had had come through her, sort of, we'd have a bit of a clue, you know, she'd, she'd know some of the clients. So if I, if I got accosted or she got accosted, we'd sort of have a bit of a sign like, oh, yep, I've just got to go. My friend's waiting for me over there and we'd sort of get out of it. So, yeah, find ways of managing those boundaries. So have those um, responses ready is 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 one thing I think that I found really handy. Yeah, it sounds like having those canned, firm but polite responses. Like yeah. I could imagine me in the shopping centre if I didn't have a canned response, I'd be like, "Mate, I'm just buying my wheat bix here. Like, can yeah. we do this another time?" But it it's nicer to have that firm but polite and acknowledge that. Okay, thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Okay, I'll book you in on Monday. Yeah. Yeah, that was always my you know go to. No worries, I'll give you a call Monday. I've got to run. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So Julie, I'm just curious, was there any other surprises for you when you began working rurally? Um, I guess I found it, you know, working in the country was my first job as a psychologist. So I think it was a really steep learning curve. I, I, I think that would apply wherever you work. But I think because in the, I think one of the things I loved about it and looking back, I'd always encourage new psychs to go rural or remote. I think that one of the best things about it, as scary as it was in the beginning, is I pretty much had to deal with whatever walked through the door. So, you know, um, some services you might have a particular client base or a particular issue you might be working with. You know, I walked across the the life spectrum 
with kids, adults, families, with, you know, whatever walked through the door, whatever issue walked through the door. So I think it was a really steep learning curve, but I think it was a great way of getting experience as a psychologist. And I know I did five years in the country before I moved back to the city the first time. And when I came back, I felt like I could work in any service with any issue. I pretty much covered most things, you know. Um, And I guess within that too, you know, I utilised supervision on those areas which were maybe out of my area of expertise um, because sometimes when you're working remotely, there's not that option to refer somebody on to another um, service that specialises. So I had great supervision during the time, you know, uh, I guess not just during my um, registration but ongoing after that and utilise that to make sure I was providing the best services or sometimes even sort out specialist supervision that um, targeted. So if I had to do, I think the first time I remember doing a post-traumatic stress sort of assessment um, for a workers' comp claim, you know, I sort out a supervisor who had that experience. So, you know, so you just, I guess, making sure you cover that. But, yeah, I I don't think I would have realised how much I enjoyed country life and how much I enjoyed the work in in, in um, working remotely, um, and I've got to say now, I don't feel like a city girl anymore. Even though I pretty much had had my life in the city, I feel like um, you know it's definitely in my skin. You know, it's definitely in there. So yeah, it's a really an amazing journey, and it really strikes me about how much support would be important for an early career psych. Like, if someone mm-hmm. comes to you and they're like, you've assessed them and they've got a dissociative disorder, you've never seen it before, but there's nobody else in the town who can treat them. They just need your help. It's like you'd need so much support to make sure that you can reach out to someone who can really help you in that area. Yeah, and I think I was fortunate the organisations I worked for were good at realising that and I guess aware of some of those, uh, I guess, issues that arose up. So the supervisors we had were generally pretty good in the different agencies I worked for. Um, and um, I was able to, I guess, find uh, otherwise other people through um, other networks. So, you know, through some of the APS um, rural and, uh, you know, regional groups and things like that, as well as um, the counselling psych sort of group as well. So just looking at ways of where I can find these other supervisors to help with that. So It sounds like your organisation was really fantastic for you. And one thing that I've noticed when interviewing psychs who have worked regionally is that if they don't have the support in place it's like they're more likely to burn out and just have a terrible time and then they quit understandably and then they go back to the city um so I'm really glad it sounds like you've had the opposite experience yeah I think I've been very fortunate in that sense so yeah and I I think there are lots of opportunities like that in the country so you know I think it's just about having a go um Julie what would you say to practitioners who have never worked rurally like is there something they're missing out on or is there a fear about working rurally which you've found is not true I I would say go I I would always encourage it I I I don't think I realized it before I went but definitely having been um it was a great experience as a person but as a psychologist as well as I said just the um range of issues and um different things that came up in, in counselling that I had to deal with, especially around ethical stuff as well. I think that that really was such a big uh, issue that presented all the time um, when you're living remotely. But I think that, um, yeah, it's worth it. It's such a great experience and I think it sets you up for the rest of your career and you can, I guess it gives you a bit of experience across everything. So, yeah, just country life was great. So the town people are great, you know, um, being part of that community was great. And I think if you manage looking after yourself in terms of that self-care, then you can find that balance to make it work for you and definitely holidays out of town, you know, regularly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, 
it's just nice. And I think the hard part is when you go to country, especially if you're starting off in a new job, it's it feels a bit overwhelming when you're leaving all your family and your friends and your supports. Yeah. So when I moved regionally, I went with I, I was on my own with my my older son. Didn't know anyone, as I said. So it was it was a bit overwhelming. Like, how was I going to manage looking after him and what did I do for work and holidays and all those sorts of things? But I met some fabulous people, and over that time, they helped me out on the school holidays and things like that. And I talk about people in the community as being my, you know, that that town family. So you know, I've got a family in that town, and they're the people who've helped me out with my kids, or they're the people that I can take my psychology hat off and sit down and have a drink with and relax and, um, or share even my personal stuff with. But I guess I found that way of finding that small group of people that I felt comfortable and safe to do that with, to include in as my, um, family rather than, and and then find, because when you're in a small country town, you're always having people who want to access your services. So then I had, I guess that, that next level out, which were associates, which might've been friends of my friends who maybe I would see because there weren't other services, but the people in my circle, I, I chose that I wouldn't be able to support them as a psychologist because we were too close. It sounds really beautiful, actually. It's like when I think of working regionally and remotely, I think of isolation as a key barrier. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm hearing from you that you actually have found really deep connections in your community. And actually, yeah. like when I hear you speak, I feel more isolated, like than than you, like in your regional town. It it sounds really cool. I'm sold. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know, like I had a child going to the country with me, but um, I guess I know from other psychs that I spoke to over the years that have worked in rural and remote as well that are single. You know, the the single life in um, country towns is great as well. So you know, cool. there's definitely psychs that I've worked with that have talked about how great it is, and I think they form their networks as well, their families. And, you know, they might do different things or they might go do the same things, but with their single friends and I'm going and doing my stuff with families or things like that. But you just meet a wide range of people that you can connect in with and you find those ones that you feel safe with that you can be yourself and take your hat off um, and forget about work and relax and enjoy things as well. Nice. So, Julie, I reckon we can come to the multiple relationships. So I'll just share with listeners, okay, I work in a big city. I work as a solo practitioner as well. And the way that I handle multiple relationships is that I try to avoid them at all costs. So if I get a client who I know has been a friend of one of my other clients, then I'm like, I don't see friends of current clients. And I've even sent like bulk emails to my clients, reminding them that I don't see family or friends because they kept on getting recommendations. And so I've even got it on my intake form. Like, do you know a current client or a previous client? Because I don't want to deal with the ethical dilemmas down the track that comes from having multiple relationships. And I can do that quite easily. I've got a list of other psychologists that I can refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to walk us through what it's like when you work remotely. I don't think that, that would ever work. <laughs> um, I think things have changed a little bit, I guess, from my first in, in the country and I had a 10-year gap back in the city and then I've been in the country again and just moved back this year. Um, I think technology's changed a lot. So I think last time I was up there, we didn't have telehealth really at all and it came in in between. So I think there are those opportunities now to potentially refer family and friends or other people um, via telehealth. I think though, and if I think back to the first time living up there, there's not those opportunities. So when there only when there's only like um, limited services in town, like I said, there was myself or a social worker, we did have a mental health nurse you know, when there's limited opportunities, 
then um, I would take the supervision and look at what what's the ethics around this. What is the ethical what, what's the ethical impact on the on the client if they don't have access to a service? At that point in time, the cost of travelling was you know too much to get to anywhere else. Even some of the nearby towns didn't have services as well. So I think you've got to look at all of that and weigh out what's in the best interest of the client. Um, in saying that, it's, it's really challenging work, and I think that's where it gets. Uh, th- there's a level of that that gets more complicated. The part of it is multiple relationships. I guess I'm thinking about clients specifically when the clients know each other, but the other part is at a personal level or when you're out in the community as well in oh, terms yeah. of relationships. Just to clarify for listeners, so you can have multiple relationships in that the clients can know each other, but you can also have a multiple relationship with clients if, say, um, you're their psychologist and then the client is a window cleaner and then they want to clean your windows and that would be another sort of relationship with that client. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And often if you've got children, then it might be a teacher or someone that's involved in the school yeah. that is related to your kids. So, yeah, I've had, I think, almost every possible type of relationship so some of the ways I guess I managed that was I would always take it to supervision and discuss it with my supervisor, you know, whether it's ethically sound to see or not to see this not to see the client. So um, I was fortunate enough that my, my supervisor I had when I first started out and probably the first few I had in the time I was up north all had regional um, and remote living and working experience. So they sort of understood that, that impact. Um, and I guess we looked at that on a case-by-case basis. For the most part, I probably generally saw most of the clients, even though there were those multiple relationships. Um, though what I did do was take each time I had any client, I would take it to supervision. So if there was any chance of, uh, I guess, having the crossover or knowing information of about one thing, one client and knowing information about another client, then I'd take it to supervision. Um, I think sometimes if depending on how people work with couples, you can have that as well. So, you know, you might have two parties and you might do individual sessions and then as well as joint sessions. And I guess sometimes if in those situations it's about that transparency and letting them know that you, you are going to share that information. So there's no secrets as such. But it can be can be really tricky. And I I can remember an example where I had multiple clients of multiple families, but of one overall issue. And it was probably one of the trickiest situations I had. Um, and I have to take every session to supervision and I made sure that I was very careful what I said in my sessions, that I didn't provide information that I knew from somewhere else in those sessions. So I was probably a lot quieter in some of those sessions um, because I had to make sure that it, that the information I was talking about was specific to that specific client. So I kept really good notes in session and and just made sure I reflected on my notes before and after each session to make sure I knew if I was going to talk to that client, I wasn't sharing information that I got from some other party in the process. So. Well, so you had to remind yourself, this is the information I've got from this client. Don't share this yes. information with this client. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really tricky and complicated, but I was, uh, you know, I used supervision really well for that. My supervisor was great for that. Um, and I think that you need to do that to manage those situations if they come up. Um, I mean, ideally you're going to go through that, uh, I guess, decision-making process before, you know, when you're deciding whether or not it's ethical to see the clients. But, um, yeah, it was complex to say the least. Yeah, can I ask you about that, Julie? So when you say the ethical decision-making process, like I imagine as an early career psych, that could be quite lengthy deciding what you're going to do with a client, what's in their best interest. Is it faster now for you? Like do you have a few shortcuts or does it still take as long? 
I think it's probably all there. And it probably wasn't until I did my supervisor training, so uh, my waterproof supervisor. And then that I probably was really presented with the models around that. And I went, oh, this is exactly what I do. Uh, um, so it was nice to sort of see it all written up. But there are, I can't think of the names of the models that there are. Um, but there are a few good models that um, that do go through decision-making process and there's one that's a great one as well that's a reflective process as well. And I find that I use those naturally all the time and I probably go through those, but I think the important part is to still go through it with someone else. I think sometimes, um, and, and probably even more so when we live in a, in a rural and remote town, like I said, when there's that feeling of responsibility or that um, custodianship, as you, as you said, Rowan, when, when that's there, I think it's easy to want to do meet the client's needs, but that might not be in the client's best interest, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it does. I think, um, you know, as always, and whenever I've supervised, I say consult, 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 and that's probably one of the best tips I've ever learned is consult, consult, consult. But I think that in that in that process, you, you need somebody else who's not in the situation to to be able to just go through it with you and make sure that your own personal bias isn't coming in, especially when we feel like we're the custodians and we feel like we've got to look after our community. Um, you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing by everyone and not, um, I guess, you know, your, your own personal bias doesn't come in there in that sense. Oh my gosh, that's so true. It's like, even as we're talking, I didn't even consider like, of course we don't want to treat clients differently to each other, um, but there might be personal biases that you have that you're drawn into acting in particular ways with some people that you don't for other people. And because it's a small community, they might tell that person. And then it's like, why is Julie doing that for me and not for you? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and there's all other aspects to it too. Like even thinking about, um, what happens if one client finds out that you're seeing them? Yeah. You know, and if you're seeing multiple relationships, how is that going to go down? What's that going to mean? Is it going to damage the relationship? What's the long-term impact for the client? What's the long-term impact for uh, the, the profession? You know, all those sorts of things. So, you know, it's all part of that, I guess, um, decision-making process that we go through to make sure we've, you know, cross-checked everything and then you consult about it double cross check it all again yeah so. I feel my heart rate increase just thinking about it oh my gosh it's not it's not it's not, it's not that bad. I think I think it does as you said it becomes almost automatic for me now the checklist is just tick 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 oh yeah hang on that's a red flag I'll just consult yeah. about that you know so um and and generally you know there's something in there that you either really want to do it and you're like yeah okay that, that, even that in itself is something sometimes so yeah hmm. hey, um, how do you manage it, um how do you manage self-disclosure Oh, yeah, it's really tricky in small country Because they would see you. Like let's say you're playing tennis on the weekend. It's like they would see you. Um, look, I feel that, you know, when when I'm out, particularly probably more it impacts me as a parent. Yeah. So, you know, I've been sitting on the floor in the supermarket with my, I think, four or five-year-old at the time um, while they're having a meltdown in the middle of the supermarket while, while everyone's walking around. I think that was my first week in the town, the oh second my gosh. time I went back. Yeah, I'm just going, great, here I am, the new town psychologist and my kids having a meltdown in the middle of the floor. You know, I think it was later that same week I had my kid in the football hold under the armpit because uh, my child definitely needed some food and I'm like, there's no point stopping for the meltdown. We need to get home, get food, get dinner, get fed, and then then things would be better. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I guess try and be true to myself and how I'd respond um, I think I had one of my clients, I went camping one time and I think I had nine clients camping at the same campground. Oh my gosh. And yeah. Yeah. So I, and 
I think one of my kids refused to put their sunscreen on. So, you know, I, I gave them a few warnings. And on the second day we were out camping, I said, basically, it, it, you do it straight away or, or, or I'll be doing it for you. So my child and I had a nice wrestle in the sand. Um, suppose I think they look like a lamington by the end of it. But I think um, I had one of my clients feedback. It was great to see that. It was great to see, you know, you doing what needs to be done, you know. So I, I, you just try and model and be who you are. I think the hard part is if you want to socialise and have a drink, I probably was more refrained from drinking in public. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably have a couple, but I would never, not that I was a big drinker, but never have a few too many or feel completely relaxed and just manage that information. So I'd share pairing stuff, but not necessarily all of my personal details. Wow. In, in therapy, you know, I find I would share with clients stuff that I felt would be helpful for the client. So if I had some sort of similar experience, I'd share that part of it, but without the rest of it. Or talk about how, you know, when I'm downtown, this is what I think about. So do you think everyone else is thinking about that? This is your thoughts about what people might think when they're downtown. This is my thoughts. Where do you think most people would be? You know, to, to sort of share, I guess, um, what's what's more in that normal realm. So, yeah, it, it's tricky. And I think you just be aware that you're no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, you're always a psychologist. Mm. Even if you're mum as well as a parent with the teacher who might be a client, you know, you, you're always um, the psychologist. No matter what you're doing, no, no matter what you're doing, you're holding, I guess, and containing that client's needs first and foremost, even above your own, even if... Like I said, I'm at a parent interview with a teacher who's a teacher of my child, who's my client. So, yeah, it's tricky, but you just balance it out. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like some psychologists find it really difficult to set boundaries with clients. They might be self-sacrifices and they're used to bending over backwards and um, they might find that really difficult. How comfy are you with just saying how it is and how it needs to be with your professional relationships with your clients? Um, I guess I try and be as open and transparent as possible. That's, I think, part of who I am and part of, I guess, how I practice as a psychologist. And I ask my clients for feedback if they think I've done something that doesn't meet their approval. And that includes outside. You know, so I think I learned early up to make sure, um, you know, I tried to not identify clients in public. You know, so I wouldn't say hello to people, even though it's my natural tendency to maintain their confidentiality. Um, there's occasions where I haven't been able to do that because I automatically yeah. <laughs> to, to wait. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> yep, exactly right. Um, and then hopefully the client calls me out on it or I apologise for it the next time I see the client so so that they realise, you know, um, it was a mistake. But I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it is about transparency. So I, I think if uh, and congruence, and I think if you can do that in all aspects of your life, you know, we do that at work, I think, and we need to do that as psychologists. So I think the more we can do that, the better. And I think when you live in a small country town, you know, you, you don't have that opportunity to hide. So the more congruent you are, I think the easier life is yeah. all around. Yeah, honestly, it sounds like working rurally just gives you really advanced skills in being able to make those ethical decisions. And oh, absolutely. Yeah, like that's what it sounds like to me. You just sound super comfy with it. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the things. I know when I went back and did my master's and I was a bit mortified at some of the, you know, um, uh, case scenarios we had and some of the ideas that um, some of the other students came up with um, because ethically some of that stuff, you just can't do it like that. Yeah. You know, um, and and I think that's probably one of the good foundations I had. And I think if I go back, as I said, to my first job where my um, director was really good about ethics and maintaining that and the professionalism of the service you know, you being the face of the service. And I think that 
you know, it, it's 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 not just about us, and I think that's where ethics is really focused on. It's about you know how how everything we do impacts on the client, mm. and not only that, how everything impacts on our profession. So you know, if we do something that's unethical, that might then impact that client ever accessing services you know, again into the future because they feel that psychologists weren't like that. And I think that's where confidentiality is such a big thing. Um, and I think I had a really good reputation for maintaining confidentiality. And I think that I wouldn't have got clients coming back if I didn't. Um, and I know that even, so my first in up, uh, up in the town I was living in, I met my current partner up there and I know that he had colleagues he worked with who would say to him that, oh, yeah, um, I'm sure Julie's told you that we've come to see her. You know? <laughs> Just like, no. <laughs> and, and he would be going, oh, I've got no idea about what she does. She doesn't talk to me about her work. Yeah. And my kids the same. I think one of my kids just told me when we got back to the city, oh, yeah, this kid told me that they come to see you. And I'm like, okay. And I said, what did you say? And they said, I said, oh, that's nice. And I said, perfect. Yeah, great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. So, and I didn't confirm or deny, but, yeah. you know, like, so it's it's a constant thing that happens. But I think it's... It's about making sure that everyone knows that you don't discuss stuff. You are confidential. And I think it can be hard when you need to debrief about things. So I think that's where you need to find those supports, whether it's your supervisor. I was fortunate enough. I've got a few colleagues that I studied with in my undergrad that, you know, I can ring 24 hours a day and debrief about a client if I need to. So I think that's a really another important thing about looking after yourself. Absolutely. Having that space to be able to do that because I think for clients, they need to know that, you know, confidentiality means confidentiality. And I've heard stories about people sharing with partners and things like that, information. Well, clients have told me, you know, the past person I saw, their partner knew, and I'm like, that's not how I operate at all. Yeah. You know, and if, if you ever hear that I've told anyone, please, you know, come back and let me know because I want to know because I'll set you straight. Yeah. That's not how I operate. So. Yeah. No, fantastic. Um, Julie, is there anything else that you wanted to say on multiple relationships before I do a 360 and ask you another unrelated question? Yeah, I, I'm going to say too, the other thing I found, I guess, is that um, ethics, you know, as scary as it is, probably working really remotely, I grew to love ethics. Yeah. Ethics is definitely one of my passions. Um, and I think because, as, as you're saying, Bronwyn, it just comes up all the time in a small country town. Um, and you just find ways of managing that as much as you can. So for any work I ever had to get done on my car, house, whatever, I sent my other half to ring whoever because sometimes the only client that was available, uh, sorry, the only contractor that was available was a client. So at least he could deal with it. I didn't have to worry about it. I had sometimes clients otherwise would offer me discount of how do I accept the service and not take a discount, you know. So I, thank goodness once I met him, he could do all of that for me um, and balance all of that. Um, but I think the other part that I was going to say was, I think, and I touched on it a bit, was the multiple clients. Yeah. So when you've got multiple people from multiple relationships and the crossover that goes on or things you hear out in the community as well about certain things. So I think it's about trying to find a way of using supervision to manage that um, and looking after yourself in that process because I think those complex multiple relationships or multi-clients of the of the same issue, um, you know, they are really complex to maintain that confidentiality. Um, and I think when you live in a small country town, on top of that is um, when you're out and about and if you're hanging out with your friends and uh, sometimes issues are talked about, like certain people or things that might be going on in town are talked about, you know, always maintaining that professionalism and, not, you know, just choosing not to engage in that, that conversation. 
um, because, you know, I I'll always get asked, well, what do you think about that? You know, that person, that person, this is going on. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard about them. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess that seems a bit weird, you know, and, and I'm sure some of my close friends caught on to stuff at times, but I just tried to make that standard across any conversation when I ever got asked. So, you know, just not engaging in gossip, not engaging in anything that if that person ends up coming to see you, which, you know, always happens, <laughs> um, you just maintain that professionalism and all kinds of in the community. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so it's tricky. I oh, gosh, that would be so tricky and it's just like you're the keeper of the secrets essentially. Yeah, yeah, essentially for a lot of the towns. So, you know, sometimes my kids would come home and, did you tell me, did you hear that this happened? I'm like, well, no, I haven't heard about that at all. I can neither confirm you know? nor deny. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, so, you know, it's and it's just I think that's part of the privilege of working as a psychologist yeah. is, you know, sharing, with, sharing, I guess, with clients in their difficult times and as well as knowing that there's a safe place for them to come, especially when you live in a small country town because most people don't have family and friends. Most clients don't have anyone they feel safe to talk to. Yeah. Um, and they need to know that there's a space where it is um, that um, safe sanctity where they can talk about whatever they want and it's not going to be shared. Yeah, so. I can really hear in how all aspects of your work you really try and maintain that that sanctity of the safe space for clients. It's really amazing. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a real privilege, as I said. Yeah, absolutely. So, Julie... Last thing that I wanted to ask you about was it's pretty much recognised that there are way too few psychologists um, who work rurally um, and there are far too many clients with too few psychologists. In your opinion, what's needed to get more psychologists working rurally? Um, I definitely think like pro- programs like this um, are, are great in terms of highlighting how great it is to live in the country. Yeah. You know, as I said not only the lifestyle and living in um, rural and remotely, but, you know, the work is just so rewarding. And and I think when you're starting out, as scary as it is in any job as a psychologist, um, it's even probably a little bit scarier doing it on your own out, out um, rural and remotely. But I think the breadth of experience you get is great and I think it's a great foundation for setting out for life. So I definitely think there needs to be more incentives from employers, you know, which includes things like um, getting uh, your supervision paid for. Yeah. You know, most if you work for government and even lots of the non-Gubby positions will give you transfers for moving as well as an airfare usually, depending on where you live, if you're above the 26 parallel, you get an airfare back to Perth once a year with most um, not-for-profits and government jobs. So there are some extra incentives and rewards. I think one of the other things too is about setting up Probably what I saw during COVID is how challenging it was for new grads probably in regional and remote areas and how they really needed to have some extra support. So maybe putting teams or, you know, um, a couple of um, new grads in a, in a town or in a community together so that that way they've got that support. That's a great idea. Um, yeah, and I think sometimes even, you know, other different agencies as well, like teachers or police or, you know, um, nurses or things like that, even using that as a way of grouping together new grads to provide that support across the board. I think too it would be great if, you know, even even some, I guess, just some tips about living remotely and how to get involved in things like that and um, and just managing self-care is the other one probably that's good because I think... Um, you know, it, it, while you said before, Bronwyn, it feels like that would be really isolating. Mm. Um, 
it definitely doesn't have to be. And I guess what I've seen for most rural and remote sites is that it's not. So I think just broadening that understanding for um, sites that, um, that, that it isn't like that in the country. And I think in terms of numbers, look, I, I don't know, <laughs> personally, I, I guess I was disappointed in terms of um, we've switched across to um, not having the 4 plus 2 registration anymore, which yeah, I was absolutely. fortunate to go through on. Yeah. And I just feel like that's done a disservice to clients in general in that, you know, often it is really hard to get um, sites in rural and remote areas and and for clients it's hard if they don't have services. So I think if there were more opportunities, like when we've got all these grads coming through with a four-year degree and then not being able to get a psych job unless they go on to do their um, 5 plus 1 now, you know, I think that that really restricts the number of psychs that we can be providing. And especially when, particularly for rural and remote people where suicide risks are greater, most other mental health issues are greater, you know, we really need those services and um, and, and people to go out to those areas and support it. Absolutely. I, I really feel like that's a huge downside of cancelling the four plus two as well, because all master's programs are located metropolitan areas, like all the universities that offer it are either online or metropolitan. So that means that the students are going to do their placements in metro areas. Yeah. And, and look, and I think that's a tricky part too, if you can get that opportunity in the country to do it. Um, that would be great. I think I tried in one of the places I worked with to get a, 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 um, a grant to come up and do Good their placement. Um, unfortunately, I was only part-time, so they wouldn't go for it. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Um, but I think that there are a couple that do probably specialise a little bit more in rural and remote stuff. Um, I, I want to say Monash used to do a master's course that did. I okay. Don't know if that's and I know I did my um, supervisor training through um, – James Cook, I think it was university, have a um, supervisor, a board approved one, which focuses on rural and remote. Oh, supervision. wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so I chose to do that one because it was um, it offered that opportunity for incorporating the rural and remote aspects. Mm. So, um, so I think that there is there are those opportunities out there, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a tricky situation. Absolutely. But in some ways, I've got to say, COVID has been great for rural and remote people in terms of more access to supports for rural and remote clients. But also I think that a lot of university courses went online over that period so people in the country could actually study and do masters, even though it was um, not done before. I think I heard of at least one student that was doing their masters online um, because of COVID. So I think, you know, when you're living rural and remotely, that was a great way of um, being able to get access to that level of study. Yeah, COVID gave universities a bit of a push because they were previously like, no, we can't do this, it's too yeah. expensive, we just can't do it. And then suddenly they were able to do it. Oh, it was possible. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it's interesting, I guess, you know, as courses have chopped and changed and they've gotten rid of stuff, I did my master's in counselling psychology, which was such a great course that Curtin offered. Um, and, yeah, that, that course has now been cut as well. So it's just a shame to see that they're not realising, I guess, the powers of being the, the government and the funders of all these programs aren't realising, you know, till it's too late how much more resources need to be pushed into this area. And, and I think as a preventative for rural and remote mental health, you know, that's, that's a big thing that needs to still happen. So totally. it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Julie, is there anything else that you want listeners to take away from our chat today that hasn't been captured? 
Um, I think we covered most of it. I want to say if you get the opportunity to go country, go. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sold. And I'm pretty sure that Julie's not working for like big country or anything. It's just no, like a no. genuine passion. Yeah, it's such a great experience. <laughs> such a great learning experience as a psych. And and the other thing I want to say is, um, you know, make sure you, you know, in anything, but I think particularly when you live in a small country town, you know, that self-care is so important, you know. Um, I was fortunate enough to live in a beautiful place where I could go camping and that's part of what I love to do for self-care. I've got friends that can't stand camping, but whatever floats your boat. Um, but, you know, I use that natural environment as my way of um, self-regulating and looking after myself in terms of self-care. So, you know, I can't say often enough how much how important self-care is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and particularly even more so when you're working rural and remotely. Yeah, so it's like find whatever floats your boat and then do that thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, I feel very inspired. I have been uh, having this idea for the past few years that I want to go work in Albany, which is like four hours oh, nice. down south of Perth. Um, and I know there's a big need for psychologists down there. And one of the things that strikes me in talking to you regional psychs is you – um, somebody has shared with me in the past, it's like how grateful people are in regional areas yeah. for psychologists. Is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, and that's where I come back to, I guess, being congruent. You know, the more down to earth you are as well, the more that you are yourself, the more that you integrate into the community. Um, yeah, all of it, just to have any service people are grateful for. But if they see that you are part of the community, they, they really love to see that because they see you're invested in the community as well and that's what they want, yeah. even if you're only there for a short time. So, No, awesome. Thank you so much, Julie, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your insights, experiences and expertise. It's pretty obvious your passion for rural and remote and I'm so glad yeah. we have a psychologist and waterproof supervisor who can really guide us in this area. Yeah, thanks, for It was great. And, uh, yeah, as you said, I love talking about it. So if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to be reach out and you know have a chat if, if you're thinking about it and fit down sure yeah i'll put your details in the show notes do you want to just tell us if you've got any spots for supervision or what your website is um yeah i'm currently working at green road psychology in hillary's in the city i'm still focusing on supporting rural and right country clients um but yeah if if anyone wants to um yeah reach out for supervision I've got um, vacancies available at the moment so and if anybody wants to reach out to be like hey I'm thinking of going rurally can they get in touch yeah absolutely any questions or if you've got an ethical dilemma and you get stuck and you want to reach out for some you know even a one-off don't hesitate no worries well listeners I'll put the links in the show notes so you can get in touch with Julie I'll probably put an email in there as well yeah that'll be great yeah um again thank you so much Julie And thank you listeners for listening. Take care and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. As always, we need your help getting the word out about this podcast. The only way anyone will know about the show is if you tell them. Can you think of someone who might love the show? If so, let them know. You can find direct links to this show as well as all of the links I've mentioned in the show description. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.